you'll flip over to 1 Peter chapter 3 to begin with this morning. As we think about our fathers and the men in our church and in our families, today we consider Father's Day, couldn't help but think of the fact that in too many cases in, in churches and in homes, that women often rule the roost and, and run things. And, and, I, and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, but it's, it's, it's sad that it's too often found that men often will default their responsibilities to lead in the home and in the church, amongst other places. And it's not that I think women battle for control, it's that they take over by default in too many cases in our lives. It's because men do men things, we think, and, and women get to do the rest. Well, today we're going to look at what it means to be a man of God and what it means to be leaders in our homes. And on Mother's Day, we looked at this passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we left off with the husbands. And we want to take a quick look at this this morning, because one of our areas of responsibility as men is to, is to lead our wives, isn't it? Verse 7 here of 1 Peter 3 says, Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, give honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. And we know it's God's will for the, for the man to leave the home in a godly fashion. And the first thing God tells husbands is to dwell with them with understanding, isn't it? In an understanding way. And what tells us that we don't necessarily understand our wives, do we? In fact, one preacher I heard some, several years ago say, just, if you're trying to understand your wife, just fake it. Pretend you do, because we're built differently. And, and I think the encouragement here is we do not dismiss their input into the marriage because they think differently, because they're built differently. We live with them with understanding. I can't help but think of the concept of grace. I mean, we extend grace to each other in the marriage. We're told here, in a couple terms, about the partnership of marriage. We're told to give honor to them. We're told we're, told we're heirs together of the grace of life, which indicates, indicates companionship, really equality in marriage, though we play different roles. There's an equality. We're heirs together. We're to give honor to them because the tendency throughout human history is for man to degrade their wives, to see them as second-class citizens rather than see them as companions in the grace of life that God has given us to live together for the glory of God. And we're to do so here in verse 7 as to the weaker vessel. Now that term can be a point of contention. What does that mean? And I don't think it refers to necessarily physical weakness or even spiritual weakness or emotional weakness, as some implied, I think it simply refers to her role. Because God has designed, since the fall of man, women to be dependent on the leadership of their husbands. In Genesis 3.16, God said this when he was pronouncing the curse after the, after the sin of Adam and Eve. He said to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And if you ever want to know when men, when women always want to know what's going on in your lives, it's because God's designed it that their desire shall be for their husband, and he's going to rule, he's going to lead. It isn't, isn't a dictatorship, it's a leadership. And I think this verse was a reference to is to the excuse me, this word in verse 7 is a weakness, is a reference to that role of weakness. They're put in a place where they have to be dependent, according to God's design, upon their husband's leadership. And that's not always easy. It also says in 1 Corinthians 11.3, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. In order for, for there to be order and structure, God has created the structure in marriage. And, and it's not that women are inferior of a lower class. They have a role to play, which uh, makes them dependent. And, 
so God, so here we're told as men to be responsible to, to see them as partners, to honor them and value them in the marriage partnership and relationship. And then ultimately he says that your prayers may not be hindered. Which tells us that marriage has a greater purpose than just for personal pleasure and companionship. It has the purpose of ministry, doesn't it? It has the purpose of ministry. Two people come together to be more effective for Christ. That's why God brings them together. So they can be more effective in their in their work of the gospel, in their testimony for Christ, and in their influencing other Christians. And prayers are just one aspect. And it should be an important aspect of the marriage partnership because we're in it for ministry. Now some of that ministry is to each other. We're to lift each other up. Some of the ministry is to our children. We were to raise godly children. But that ministry also extends to people around us, don't they? All parts of our ministry that we're in it together to, to function for God's glory. See, God didn't just bring people together to get married, to run off and have fun and do their own thing and find their own pleasures. He brought them together so they could serve Him and demonstrate Christ's love for the church and so on. And so we have man's responsibility in a nutshell here in marriage. A man is responsible to make the marriage boat float. That's what it tells us here. It's a responsibility we have. And if you go over to Ephesians chapter 6, we also find men that we are responsible for training our children. Now we might know that, and some of us might think, well, you know what, I know that's your case, but I'm just going to hand that over to my wife because I can do that. Well, that's not what the Bible says, does it, is it? And there are times we share those responsibilities, but verse 4 of Ephesians 6 says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And so here lays this responsibility for child raising solely on the, on the shoulders of the, of the husband and father. Now it's interesting here that phrase, don't provoke them to wrath. Now some people might say, well that means you give them everything they want because if you don't, they're going to throw a tantrum. But I don't really think that's what it really means here. And if that's your approach to parenting, um, look out in 20 years. No, I think provoking the wrath could mean several things. The Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say. So this is just some of the ideas I came up with. One thing that might provoke children to that type, to that wrath is absentee fathers. Because what really kids want is not everything you can buy them. They want you, don't they? That's really what they want. They want, they want your attention, your time, and your investment in them. Along with that, often the lack of teaching and training and restraint. Kids want restraint. It might not seem at it at the moment of rebellion and disobedience, but they, they know that they have a flesh. They have a sin nature that likes to wander and be independent and rebellious, and they know they need restraint. And you know what? For those first you know, 18 years or a little less, whatever it is, you're it. We're the restraint. Remember Eli? One of the criticisms God said of him is you did not restrain his sons and all their evil work in the temple. He did not restrain them. Kids want that. They want structure. They want restraint. They want training. Or maybe unreasonably harsh discipline. Sometimes, you know, men like to lose their temper, yell and scream, and to be demeaning and degrading. God never excuses that, by the way. That will turn kids to wrath, to rebellion. When we use our kids as a place to vent our temper. And maybe one of the greatest things is hypocrisy. Do what I say, not what I do, philosophy. And that really drives kids up a wall. If it's good for the goose, it should be good for the gander, so to speak. That hypocrisy that too often parents bring when we hold our kids to a standard that we don't even intend to keep. 
And so, we, so that's one consideration God puts first and foremost in this verse. And he also says, on the, contra, on the other hand, but in contrast to that, bring them up to the training and admonition of the Lord. Bring them up. Invest in them. They're a ministry. They're a responsibility to train them, first of all, then, first of all in the Lord. That's our responsibility first. I like it doesn't say it doesn't tell us necessarily to teach them how to how to uh, work and do hobbies and play sports and make money and all those things. Well, those are part of life, obviously. But all those things are to be taught in the context of the Lord, in the context of a biblical worldview, of a divine perspective towards life. That's our responsibility because just like us. The flesh naturally gravitates towards the things of this world, and we have to bring our children back into a divine and biblical perspective in life and create spiritual values, eternal values in their lives. Now that, in a nutshell, is a responsibility we have as men, and we ought to perform as men of God. If you turn to Titus chapter 1, one other responsibility I believe is worth mentioning this morning is that to be leaders in our church. And I'm not saying that every... Individual, every father and and man in the church is to be, you know, on some board, but we are to lead. And when in here in Titus chapter one verses six through nine, it describes for us the qualifications of elders. And in this qualifications, you can read it at your leisure. We find a call to holiness, to be blameless, to to be separate from sin, and so on, to have self control. We see this call to holiness. We also see the admonition to exhort. We're to exhort. I mean, we're to be concerned about others and try to lift others up, encourage others in their faith. We're to hold fast to the faithful word. That means we're to learn the word, know the word, stand for the word, and hold tight to the word of God. That we might, in turn, then help correct those who are in contradiction. That's the ministry. Now, I think these aren't qualifications that are exclusively for those who are elders. In fact, I think really the opposite is true in the sense that the elders are simply the ones who, are, who have grown to this point in their lives. Those who have aspired to serve God in these areas of holiness and blamelessness, of self-control, of ministry and encouraging others, and of willingness to stand for the truth of God's word. Men, and, and, what, and what church leadership does is recognize men who have who've arrived, who've grown to this point who qualify for this. And so, what comes first, the elder or the qualifications? Well, obviously, qualification comes first, and I believe God puts that in for all of us. Wouldn't it be great to have a church filled with men who, are, who, are, who get to take turns being elders because they're qualified in regards to what God lays out for the qualifications? And so, men are to lead in the church by a godly example and by, by a willingness to be a servant of Christ and a willingness to stand for the truth of the word. Now, I went through all these quickly, just to point out at least three areas. There are others in which we lead in our workplace, in the community, in our nation, and so on, where we lead. But the point is, God has called men, men of God, to be leaders for the glory of God. We're to lead in, in a way that would be effective for God's glory in each area of responsibility. And you might ask ourselves, how can we expect others to look to come to Christ, others to submit to the will of God, in, in their lives, whether it's spouses, children, or in the church, if we aren't following Christ, because that's what this describes. And all these things were to follow Christ, were to submit to His will for us to be leaders and to lead by example. 
And so we want to ask ourselves this morning, how am I, how's my leadership skills, spiritual leadership skills in my marriage, in my home, and in the church? Am I following God, first of all, that I'm really pulling others along with me? Because that's the idea. We're like the lead dog in the, in the uh, dog slip. You know, we just, we're pulling others along with us. That's the point. We're out in front leading. That's what a man of God does to, in each one of these areas. And I want to consider a verse this morning that what it means to be followers of God, to be led by the Lord in order to be the men of God that we ought to be in the responsibilities that God brings into our lives. So I want you to turn to the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy chapter 10, just one verse we're going to zero in on this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And this is relevant because we recognize in the Old Testament that God was a father to Israel. He dealt with Israel as a nation, and he was their father, and they were to follow him. Listen to him. In verse 12, God said, tells Israel what he requires of them. In verse 12, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? And notice there's four things here. To fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And I think these things summarize for us God's requirement for you and I to be people of God. This is what God requires. To fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, and to serve Him with all our heart and with all our soul. And as we consider these things, the first thing we're told is to fear the Lord your God. Common theme in the Scriptures, isn't it? The fear of the Lord. And we recognize that fear isn't a fraidy cat type of fear. It is an awesome respect for God. It's that respect that God is who He says He is. Fear is in reality an awe of God. He is an awesome God. He's an amazing God. And let's respect Him as a God of truth and of justice and of love and faithfulness. It's a respect for His almighty character and it involves a recognition that He is God and Creator. And that has an effect on us if we really believe that. If we really live in the fear of the Lord, it's going to have an effect on how we live and how we view life because He's the Creator, we're the created. He has the truth that sets us free. He has a truth that gives wisdom. And we're going to respect Him and His Word. See, a, a true fear of the Lord would cause us to submit to His fathering in our lives. And men of God, that's where to start. We're to, we're to respect God's fathering in our lives because He knows what He's talking about. What was that insurance company that says, whoever it was speaks, people listen? You know, was, I remember years ago, this commercial. And if one of the advisors from this insurance or investment firm, whatever it was, speaks, everybody got quiet and listened. Well, that's the fear of the Lord. That God wants our hearts to be quiet and listen to His wisdom. It's like, in fact, it's something we should pursue. In 2 Corinthians 6.18, God says, after calling us out to be separate, He says, I will be a father to you, and you should be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And sometimes we have a problem with that as men, because, you know, we're, we're self-made men, we're independent, we can handle things on our own, and we don't like to always admit that we need fathering. But that's exactly what the Bible is telling us. We need fathering. If you don't believe that, look at all the disasters around us in life of, of ineffective and absentee fathers. We need divine guidance. We need divine direction. We need divine help. We need God to father us in life. Isaiah 64, 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our father, and we are the clay. You're the potter, and we are the work of your hand. And we need to be willing to carry out our fathering according to God's design. 
I like this verse in Jeremiah 3, verse 4 says, Will you not from this time cry to me, Father, my Father, you are the guide of my youth. And that should be our attitude. And if we aren't willing to submit to the fathering of God, how can we pull others, being the lead dog and the dog sled, along with us to submit to the will of God in their lives? This is where it begins, doesn't it? You see, the wonder of these promises of the fathering of God is, is that God's going to hold our hand as we navigate life. Psalm 32, 8, 8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. That's God's promise to us. It's a promise we can depend on, we can count on, that God will guide us. He'll, he'll teach us His Word. He'll guide us in living His Word. He promises to guide us. And that's what we so desperately need. So being a man of God begins with knowing we desperately need to keep our hands in the Father's hands. Now we recognize that some of us, maybe even sitting here, have not had necessarily good fathers. Some of us had gone through broken families and situations. And sometimes in those situations we have trouble trusting any father. But we need to be assured that our Heavenly Father is a faithful father. He's given a promise, promises, thousands of promises, such as Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never, never leave. He's not going to be an absentee father. He's not going to be a dismissive father, abusive father. He'll never leave nor forsake us. In fact, thinking about it, that's one nest that will never be empty. You know, you and I, you know, kick the kids out when they get to be 18 or maybe some a little older or a little older or a little older. And then they come back and we have to kick them out again. But our Heavenly Father's nest is never empty. We're designed for a lifelong dwelling place in the nest of our Heavenly Father. It's under His wings we come to trust, isn't it? And so, the first thing we ask ourselves, do we fear the Lord? Do we really have an awesome respect for God? Have we gotten the scriptures so God might impress upon us His might, His glory, His faithfulness, and so on? And if we do fear Him, then we can respect and expect His leading in life to be the man of God I ought to be. So the question is, if we're to lead in this direction, do those around us see in us the fear of the Lord? Second thing we're told here is walk in His ways. It kind of follows on that heels of the fear of the Lord. Let's walk in His ways. It refers to submission to His Word and His will, since He is God and Creator and Father. It's, this is a normal expression of a fear of the Lord, a respect of God, is to walk in His Word. We should never question His authority. His Word is always true. I've been having a, uh, this uh, Bible study, a beginner's Bible study with a fellow over the last several months, and uh, as he began to learn some things, we came to an area of study that talked about the choice we have to make each and every day, whether we're going to follow the Lord, obey His Word, and apply it to our lives. He looked at me and said, you mean there are Christians who don't? I mean, that's naive, isn't it? There are Christians who don't. I thought, boy, you've got a lot to learn. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But that, that's, that naivety was, was refreshing. Because that's the expectation. If we fear the Lord and respect Him and His Word, we follow Him implicitly. I want you to turn over to Malachi chapter 1. Here I think we get a great example of a time when Israel wasn't wholly following the Lord. Last book of the Old Testament, in case you're 
trying to turn pages quietly so people don't know you don't know where you are. So you know how it is. I know that book is so turn them really quietly so people don't think I'm lost. We've all been there. Here in Malachi, we find a period in Israel's history in which they had were distant from their God. And notice these verses. This is quite quite a uh, confrontation, you might say, in your face dialogue from the Father. Verse 6 says, As a son honors his father, and a servant his master, if then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? And so God's calling with the carpet, isn't he? I'm the father, and I'm the master, but where's my respect? Verse 7, You have offered food on my altar, but say, In what way have we defiled you? By saying, The table of the Lord is contemptible. Now they never said this, but actions speak louder than words, and that's what God is pointing out. Verse 8, And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? So God's asking, what kind of sacrifices and service are you offering? Now, were they to offer the, the lame of the flock, the blind of the flock? No, when God set up the sacrificial system, they were, offered, they were to offer the choice. They were to offer the best. They were, offered the, they were to offer the unblemished, the firstlings, and so on. They were to give God their first and best. That's what this represents. But instead, they were being logical. They're saying, well, you know what? If we call out the lame and the blind, then we're going to get more for the good animals that we have, and we can give more to the Lord. Imagine that. We can give more to the Lord. Isn't that logical? That's how our mind works. But that's not what God wants. God wants us to be biblical, not necessarily logical. That doesn't mean don't run out making all kinds of illogical decisions, but you get the point. Verse, he goes on in the middle of verse 8, says, Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? You know, if some dignitary came to your house and you, you know, you put a one-eyed, one-eyed lamb on the on the grill, would he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of Hosts. He said, "You're showing more respect to your dignitaries than you are to your God." But now entreat God's favor that He may be gracious to us. Well, this is being done by your hands. Will He accept you favorably? Says the Lord of Hosts. That's the question. Is He accepting this kind of service, this kind of lifestyle of not giving your first and best? Who is, verse 10, who is there even among you who would shut the doors so you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? That's God's answer. Shut the doors of the church. You'd better just stay home. Don't bother if that's the kind of service you bring. If you're not bringing your first and your best, God says, I don't accept that. I'm not impressed by your going to church, by you offering service if it's not done according to the word of God. He goes on to say, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even though it's going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered by my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord. But you profane it, and so on. You get the point here. You see, to walk in his ways is to follow him implicitly. And that was the problem in Israel. They were serving God in their terms, living life their way and asking God to bless it and expecting Him to accept it. And God's not impressed with religious activity 
or service unless it's done according to his perfect word and will. In fact, verse 13, if you jump down there, tells us their true attitude like when they also say it's a weariness and you sneer at it. It became a burden for them to serve the Lord. They were so sloppy in their attitude towards God. And verse 14 gives us the problem and the answer. He says, But cursed be a deceiver who has it in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is, what is blemished. That's the problem. The answer, verse 14, For I am a great king, said the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And so we have these tied together, the fear of the Lord and a willingness to walk in his ways implicitly. That's what God asks for us. And that's where, and that's a challenge if we're going to be a man of God. We're going to lead. In our church, in our, in our marriages, in our, with our children, and wherever, is God's word the absolute authority in our lives. The next thing we're told in Deuteronomy 10, 12, then, is to love him. Common concept in the scriptures, isn't it? Deuteronomy 6, we shall love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And sometimes these days we get confused about love because the world views love as passionate and emotional, and that might be the fruit of it, but the love is really an attitude, isn't it? It's an attitude of appreciation, thankfulness, and commitment to our God. First John 4.19 says, We love him because he first loved us. That's how we develop a love for God, is to see his goodness, see the expressions of his love. And if we're never in the Word, if we're never recognizing God's work in our lives, if we're not seeing his his faithfulness to us, his goodness to us, his love towards us, then there's not, there's not going to be any love to return, is there? It means recognizing God, spending time with God, is how love is developed. And so we're to have a response of love. So verses that tell us, it reminds us of the goodness of God. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And sometimes we take our salvation for granted. But here is a reminder that blessed be God, uplift God, glorify God, because, because of the mercy and salvation that's come to us through Jesus Christ and the sure hope of heaven that we have. God's proven his love towards us. It's not a question, is it? Greater love than no man than this than a man laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus did that on the cross for you and I. There's not a higher expression of love. Matthew 7, verse 9 through 11 says this, or what man is there among you, if his son asks for bread, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? Or if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I love those three words, how much more. Wonderful words, how much more? Does your Father give good gifts? Ephesians 1, three says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Psalm 23.6, remember, we'll end of that psalm, says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So, God is a good God. And that should create in us an attitude of thankfulness, a culture of thankfulness in our life that we recognize that uh, the, the extent to which God loves us. Ephesians 5 talks about giving thanks always for all things. It's repeated in Colossians chapter 3, giving thanks to God and the Father through Him and everything we do. But the problem with this attitude of a response of love and an attitude of thankfulness that expresses our love to him is too often we interpret our views of God in light of our circumstances. If life is good, God is good. 
Sometimes my wife and I chuckle a little bit when we thank God for sunny days. Or at least these days for rainy days. Maybe a good point. God, you're so good, we say, when he does that. And then when it's ice falling out, falling from the sky and taking on power lines, it's got goodness changed. You know, kind of we laugh at ourselves. We're like that. You know, we don't pray that song of thanks when those bad things happen. So we interpret God in light of our circumstances. Forgetting that God is always good. But if life is bad, then we don't think maybe God is so good. And we forget that it's man is the one who has brought brokenness to life. It's through sin meant through man's sin entered the world, and brokenness is the result of that sin, and that God, in reality, is a faithful Father who will always be with us in order to navigate and survive the problems of life. If you want a trouble-free life, then pray for the rapture, because that's going to be heaven. We're told while we're on earth, we're going to have tribulation, period. That's a fact, because we brought sin into this existence, because we have sin natures which are inherently selfish and rebellious and and, and like to make trouble. But God has left us here to lead people to eternal glory. That's why we're here. That's why it's so important to be a man of God, so that we might lead people to join us to that place where there be no more sorrow, tears, and crying, and so on, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our calling. In the meantime, God is always good as he helps us navigate the challenges of life. The last thing in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and that challenges us this morning, is to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now I think it's interesting that this is distinct from walking in his ways. To serve him with all our heart and soul. It's a distinct point in God's list here of what he requires of us. It's one thing to walk in his ways and live godly lives. It's another thing to serve him. Because service indicates a commitment to him, doesn't it? And what we see here is that God wants all of us. All your heart and all your soul. That includes the whole life, doesn't it? 1 Samuel 12, 24 says, Only fear the Lord, there's that concept again, and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. It's kind of all those things we're studying in a nutshell again, isn't it? Fear the Lord, serve him in truth, walk in his ways with all your heart, serve him, for consider what great things he has done for you. He's a good God, and we need to love him in return. But in either case, it's all, 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 our whole being. It begins with our heart, our loyalty to him, our love for him. And there's a question I think we could ask ourselves in light of this study this morning. Is God in our lives and the troubles we face and the challenges we, we, we meet, is God our first consideration or our last resort? Good question, isn't it? Because often he's our last resort. We forget that he wants to be included. He wants to grip our hand and hold it tightly. He wants us to be like you know, a little child, when there's danger on the rising, and, he, you know, your son's holding your hand, and he's hiding behind your legs, and he feels as safe as ever. Unless he thinks his dad's a wimp or something, but that's a story. <laughs> <laughs> but our God's not a wimp. I'm going to title that message. <clears throat> you see, that all our heart and all our soul, our heart is needed to be loyal to him first, committed to him first, and our soul represents our daily life. So we need to we serve him in our marriage as a cradle for his glory, in parenting. Are we serving him and raising God-honoring children? Is that our objective? In our church life, are we utilizing our gifts to contribute to the, to the body? In our social life, are we seeking to build redemptive relationships, living openly for our Lord Jesus? In our work life, do we work in a way that will bring glory to God and all others to see Christ in us, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? All of our lives. 
John wants to be included. He wants to give us wisdom and direction so that we can lead others to Christ through life and lip. You know, serving the Lord isn't demeaning. People think servitude is demeaning or drudgery. But in reality, it's simply a recognition of our place as a created by an almighty, loving, faithful creator God. It is really discovering our greatest joy in living the way our creator has designed for us, isn't it? Sin has conned us into thinking that joy comes from independence, running our own show, fulfilling our own desires, seeking our own wants. But all that is just a mirage. In fact, someone has said when you make a statement, when, when, when I is inserted into the sentence, we're often in trouble. I want, I will, and so on. These things that we see here describes the man of God. And it's a choice that you and I must come to to serve the Lord our God. Some believers never get to that threshold and think, okay, you know what, I need to take my faith seriously. I need to draw near to my God so I can be the man of God God wants me to be, or woman of God, if you prefer this morning. And it's a choice we come to, but it's also a choice we make every moment of the day. And Joshua challenges that, didn't he, when he, when he says, choose, choose you this day who you're going to serve. He recognized the people's tendency to wander away from their God. And he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's a determination that Deuteronomy 10 is implying here. Serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. I always encourage young people who are looking for a mate to look for that kind of a person. One that hears a that one that has a fierce and dogged determination to serve the Lord with all their heart and all their soul. Because it's only with the Lord can we survive even the, the rigors and challenges of marriage. So we have to ask ourselves in light of Deuteronomy 10 12 is do others see these pursuits in us? Are the people we're to be leading? Men, our wives, our children, our churches, and so on. Do they see this? Do we see where we're going, where we're heading? Do we see with the direction we're we're living. <clears throat> the Bible indicates to us that in order for us to be effective and successful in these responsibilities, we, we must first be men of God. We need His grace, we need His help, we need His godliness. We must seek Him first. And so, I'll leave you with this verse this morning. How are we doing? These four things. And I think these four things, to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, and to serve Him with all your heart and all your soul, are not just meant to be this morning a criticism and a calling out, but rather an opportunity. These are the things God would develop in us so that we could be the leaders that God would call us to have us to be in whatever our calling is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for even the opportunity to become Christ-like in our lives, to be men of God. And Father, we realize men of God is not a term that it, that it simply describes a preacher, Father, but it is to describe your, your children, men you raise up to lead in various ways and capacities of life. And Father, we need to do so in a godly way. For in that, we fulfill the great commission in, in, in teaching and leading people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that you would help our men in our church and ladies as well, that we might be people of God, that we might consider these challenges you lay before us today that we might be seeking you first in all that we do, that we might fear you, that we might walk in your ways, that we might love you with our whole heart and serve you with our whole heart and soul. Father, make these things helpful and practical.